You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast, putting evidence back into soft tissue therapy. Association podcast episode 148. My name is Matt Phillips, creator of RunChat Live, and this podcast is being recorded as always live on the Sports Therapy Association YouTube channel. And normally on a Tuesday, today's actually a Wednesday, so I'm looking forward to seeing whether our regular live lounge people make it here today, or whether it's totally thrown and being the day after it's normally for the last 147 weeks. Um, but I can see now that people are coming to the live lounge, so it's worked okay. Uh, Penny is here, Soma Sports Massage Therapy. The advantage of joining us live, by the way, is um, you get to come up on our screen if you leave a comment. So I can bring up your logo, I can bring up your photo, and it's great web networking. So if you are listening to podcasts and you do like the idea of joining us live and obviously being able to ask direct questions to the guests, then all you need to do is head along to the Sports Therapy Association YouTube channel. Normally on a Tuesday at 8 o'clock, tonight's on a Wednesday. If you follow us on social media, UK underscore STA, then or, or Matt at Runshot Life, then you will see ample advertising to let you know where we are going to be. So hi, Penny. Hi, Glenn. Hi, Nikki Mansfield. He says, evening, peeps. Uh, happy Wednesday. Thank you, Nikki. Glad you all managed to make it. And other people are coming through now as well. So um, this month, we are focusing on abdominal and groin pain. We've been working our way around the body probably for the last five or six months, with a few intermittent um, different focuses. And we've arrived at the abdomen and groin. Uh, last week, because it's the first Tuesday of the month, then we had Ask Us Anything, which is where we have members of the STA team, um, and also uh, Tim Allardyce as well joins us to answer your questions, anything to do with the soft tissue therapy industry. Um, if you missed that episode, there's a, again, we normally get to about six questions emailed to us, um, it's all on YouTube. You can watch the video there. We're also joined by Dr. Fiona Higgs, who's the host of the Women's Sports Therapy podcast. And also with us um, was Gary Benson, founder of the STA. So um, also available on any podcast player. So you can listen to us then. And all of it, video, is available on thesta.co.uk on the website. It's uploaded there as well. There we go. But like I say, this week, well, this month it's going to be abdominal and groin pain. We're shortly going to be talking to Dr. Sarah Rollins, who has been on the show a couple of times before. I think one of only two guests has ever done a back-to-back, but that is understandable given um, Dr. Rollins' involvement in endurance sports and things like that. But um, next week um, we're going to continue with abdominal and groin pain. My guest is going to be Dr. Dora Papadopoulou, sport and exercise musculoskeletal consultant and orthopedic surgeon, who's going to be talking about sports-related groin and abdominal issues. The week after, which will be May the 24th on a Wednesday. Make sure that's made clear across the normal channels. My guest is going to be Benoit. My guest is going to be Benoit Matthew. We couldn't make it for the hip the last time we did that. Um, but Benoit will be joining us from Function to Fitness, focusing particularly on his speciality of groin pain. And then finally in part four, which will be recorded on the normal Tuesday at 8 o'clock on May 30th, my guest is going to be Jenny Bowell of Bowell Education. We'll be focusing um, specifically on diastasis recti, which is known as abdominal separation. So, I mean, it's a great five month, five Tuesdays in the month um, this May. So we've got four fantastic speakers lined up for you. 
and tonight is going to be no exception. Um, as always, if you've got any questions, other people are coming in. Tracy Marsh says hi. Tracy Taylor, hi. Gary Benson, who's founder of the STS, has joined us. So, yeah, if you, you guys have got any questions at all, this is your chance. Um, do please just shout out. I'll give permission to Sarah, Dr. Sarah Rodens to, if she sees anything that grabs her eye, just to stop me in my tracks and say, oh, so and so's got a good question. So do please, um, Penny here said, possibly Greek, Mr. But yeah, I can actually confirm that you're right. You recognize the name. Papadopoulos, I think there was a definite um, some Greek uh, connection there. So, Penny, yeah, you're going to be informed on is that that's going to be next week. Anyway, I have left Dr. Sir Rollins down in the lobby for long enough. So, without further ado, in this part one of abdominal and groin pain, let's bring up my guest, Dr. Sarah Rollins. You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast evidence back into soft tissue therapy. Yeah, good, thank you. Yeah, Sarah, please. Oh, thank you very much. That's very <laughs> nice of you. Um, you can see me, can you? We're doing this, again, you're unique in so many ways, Sarah. Um, and you're the only guest I know who you're watching on YouTube and joining me via the Belive TV software. So, But you're managing to see me and hear me at the same time, are you? I am, yes, yeah. Fantastic. And there's not too much of a lag? Uh, don't know yet. Okay, wonderful. So um, good to see you. Like I say, you've been on the show a couple of times before, back to back, one of them was. You were here in January, uh, flew by in episode 133, uh, talking about the anatomy behind buttock pain. And as we were saying off air, I mean, we get regular feedback and I thank everybody who emails in. Never feel embarrassed about emailing in. It's just a few words. Really great and it helps us form um, the future of Sports Therapy Association podcast. But yeah, everybody loved your the way you described the anatomy behind buttock pain um, and the visuals you gave with your models and things. So I'm really pleased that you were able to come back and this time do your magic with abdominal and groin pain. So thank you very much. Um, and then you came back the week after with um, past colleague, sound of bells in the distance, Ema Acton, <laughs> who has gone off to other pastures um, uh, to discuss, yeah, wonderful case history that you had. So, yeah, if you're interested in buttock pain, I would definitely recommend, guys, that you uh, check out 133 and 134 on your favourite podcast app. So, um, how are you, first of all? Yeah, good, thanks. Yeah, busy, busy, as always. Of course you are. For people who haven't actually listened to uh, the other two episodes, could you just give us a little breakdown of your history and what you do? Yeah, so I'm a consultant in sports and exercise medicine. I um, am an ex-army doctor um, and left the army in 2009. I've been working in sports medicine for quite some time now, but I worked, started working in the MOD um, rehab centre in Aldershot in 2012. Uh, I've been doing that job ever since. And in October last year, I started working uh, part-time for uh, pure sports medicine uh, in Rains Park. So I now do... Um, half for the MOD and half for pure sports medicine, um, which just um, is a nice change because I get, I'm now exposed to uh, a wider selection of the population. Um, so not just uh, um, people between the ages of about uh, 18 and uh, 50 uh, now get to see children down to about age eight and obviously um, anybody above that. So um, yeah, it's just a, a new facet to my work, which I'm really enjoying. Um, and you've got a particular interest um, yes. in musculoskeletal ultrasound, which I think we might be touching on tonight here in relation to abdomen and groin pain. 
Yes, that's right. So I've got two um, main interests. I um, am a teacher or mentor for um, musculoskeletal ultrasound. Um, and uh, that's what I did my master's in. Um, and um, in particular, I'm also um, uh, very interested in women's health rehab uh, and in particular the anterior abdominal wall and in particular ultrasound of the anterior abdominal wall. Um, so um, it's kind of why I'm back here is because it's kind of like my little niche topic. And so I thought I'd come and um, talk to you about uh, the thing that I enjoy most of all. Um, yeah, hopefully you'll enjoy it. Thank you very much. Fantastic. Well, look, um, I think we we can delve right into it. So last time, I mean, you've got big shoes to fill, but they're your own shoes. Everyone's amazed by the way that you described the anatomy of the buttock. So, yeah, anatomy of the anterior abdominal wall. Over to you. Right. Well, um, OK, so uh, where to start? No yeah, no problem. So um, I'm going to try and break it down so that it's because it's it's actually mostly simple uh, and there's a very logical way to break it down. So we can break it down into its layers and we can break it down into its components. So if you think about uh, the so the region we're talking about is basically from the um, edge of the rib cage uh, down to the um, uh, the top of the pelvis. So you can imagine that it's kind of uh, this shaped at the top with the two rib cage like that. And then you've obviously got the side of the body and then it's this shape at the bottom down from the pelvis down to the pubic symphysis. So you have a, um, oh, I don't know what that shape is, uh, <laughs> up the sides like that um, uh, shape. Uh, and that's the anterior abdominal wall uh, with the umbilicus in the middle. So we've obviously got our anterior layer, which is with our skin. Uh, then we have a layer of adipose tissue, so our fatty layer, uh, and some loose connective tissue. And then the next layer is the aponeurosis of the external oblique. So that is a kind of thick, tenderness structure um, that sits um, as the front of the anterior abdominal wall uh, and is um, part of external oblique. So we have three layers of muscle at the anterior abdominal wall. Um, on the kind of sides of the abdomen. And then in the middle, we have two rectus muscles. So they're strap-like muscles in the middle, which is your six pack. And on the side, we have external oblique. So at med school, and I still remember it now, external oblique muscle uh, is like putting your hands in your pockets. So if you think about where the striations go, it contracts like that because if you put your hands in your pockets that's the way the striations go internal oblique goes up like this it's just the opposite um that's the next layer in and then we've got an inner layer of muscle which is transversus abdominis which is like putting your hands into the front of a uh ooh, a hoodie for example um and they all come together and join at the edge of the recti abdominis muscles uh, that line at the edge is called um, the linear semilunaris, which means half a moon. Um, and then you've got the recti muscles and there's a bit in the middle, which is the linear alba. And that means white line. Um, and, uh, and that's exactly what it is. So just to go through that again, we have right in the midline, a fascial layer, a thick, tight. No, it's not that thick, actually. It's a, uh, it's a strong fascial layer called the linear alba. Then we've got recti either side the strap like muscle then we have uh, another connecting area called the linear semilunaris and then we have three layers of muscle external oblique 
internal oblique and transversus abdominis. And they all connect at that linear semilunaris and then they go back and round. Uh, and they are connected to the rib cage and they're connected to the pelvic brim at the bottom. Um, and um, I'm going to put a picture up in a second, which I think you're going to put up for me, Matt. Um, which is the the first picture that I asked you to to show, and this shows basically what happens to the layers of muscles on the anterior abdominal wall. Um, I'm going to just give you a second. Are you? It's up there now on the screen. It might take. Oh right, of course I can't see it. <laughs> yes. Let's <laughs> <'Cause I> listen <laughs> to the podcast. This is this is going to be an episode where it's worth jumping onto YouTube if you can to see the images. We'll try and describe what we're showing on the images, but the best thing for you if you can. Uh, it's not that one. It. It's the next one. It's the next one. That's okay. That's fine. Yeah. Because that's all about diastasis. Hopefully it's the next one. Otherwise, it's I've given you the wrong numbers to take a picture. Um, no, I've only got two. Yes. Yeah, so hopefully number it's this next four. one you're about to show. Otherwise, it's fine because I can just describe it. So I've got the one of the upper torso now, lateral view, showing diastasis uh, recti abdominis, why do women present? Okay, well, this is this isn't the one, but this is a good one. So um, this is the outer bit of the external uh, of the anterior abdominal wall once we've taken off the skin and the fat. Um, so if you go to the one with the muscles on, yes. Um, and um, so uh, the point that this slide is particularly making is the that the anterior abdominal wall muscles are not working on their own. They are connected to the rest of the musculoskeletal system. And I probably mentioned it in the last podcast is that we humans have divided things up very neatly into little packages. Um, and so we've divided that anatomy up and given it all names. However, everything works as, as together. It's a system, uh, a musculoskeletal system. And so we have the anterior abdominal wall is intimately connected with the upper and lower limbs. And what I'm pointing out in this particular picture is that we've got the abdominal head of pet major is actually um, it inserts onto the external oblique aponeurosis. So we've got one of our upper limb muscles or one of our chest muscles that actually attaches to uh, the external oblique. And we've got serratus anterior, which is that muscle in, in um, uh, that you see in, for, for example, boxes that comes around and is one of the scapular stabilizers uh, and helps with the. Uh, uh, sh uh, shoulder protraction and retraction, uh, stabilizing the scapula. Uh, and that one interdigitates with external oblique. Um, and so sort of tucks in like that. And so we have direct connections between the upper limb and the lower limb. Um, and um, they are all part of what um, I, th I love this term is called the thoracopelvic manometric system. So it does exactly what it says. So we've got the thorax and we've got the pelvis. Um, and the, uh, so the thorax being everything above the level of the pelvis and that system, uh, manometric is to do with pressure. So all the muscles of the anterior abdominal wall are trying to create a kind of pressure effect of the, uh, of the abdomen so that the lower limbs can, for example, uh, move whilst the upper limbs are stable and the force of the upper limbs can actually then be uh, transmitted through to the lower limbs. So you can imagine um, when you're running, you want to have a nice stable thorax uh, so that your um, uh, legs can move um, uh, well underneath and your legs are able to easily move the mass of your body forwards, whilst at the same time your arms are helping to drive your, your legs by transmitting force through the slings across your body, both on the front and the back. Um, and similar, and also then we've got, for example, you think of a, a javelin thrower who's going to try and uh, throw the javelin 
um, across and uh, they are going to be trying to transmit. So they're going to stamp their leg down. They're going to try and throw that. And that all needs to be transmitted through the uh, thorax. And so, you know, the the, the abdomen, the, the muscles there, we, tr we, you know, people tend to think of like... Um, sports injuries being related to to the arms and legs and you know pelvis uh, gluteal area but in fact um uh obviously we've got muscles and tendons and nerves and ligaments and fascia all of the anterior abdominal wall and they can get injured as well um so i'm just trying to make sure that i've uh, thought about um, all of the anatomy of the front of the wall so we've got our skin our fat we've got external oblique internal oblique, transversus, we've got our recti, um, and then we've got transversalis fascia, which is another layer of fascia before we get to the peritoneum, which is the, basically the sac that holds all your organs together. Um, so that's the anterior abdominal wall. There are a few little quirks. So the upper two thirds of the anterior abdominal wall, um, in fact, I'm going to start that sentence again, because just to explain it better. So the recti, their job is to kind of curl us forward, um, so to get us to bend over, um, because that's the way the striations go. So uh, their, their job is to, to, to flex us. But because they're so long and they're only connected at the top and the bottom, what happens is they are held together. So if, you, if I now uh, tip the body up, they are held together in a rectus sheath like that. And that sheath is made up of layers. The top layer is made up of the external oblique aponeurosis. And the bottom layer is made up of the transversus abdominis aponeurosis. And internal oblique gets to the edge and splits. And half of it goes up and half of it goes down. That is the situation for the top two thirds of the abdomen. And then you have something called the arcuate line, which if you look at people who are really ripped, um, about two thirds down the abdomen, there's almost like a line that goes across the abdominal wall. Um, and then below that layer, basically everything attaches to the rectus sheath and goes up and over the top. And the only thing you have on the bottom is the transversalis fascia. So the lower two thirds of the anterior abdominal wall are slightly weaker in terms of, um, for example, uh, allowing uh, hernias to penetrate the abdominal wall. And in particular, um, as we get even lower down near the inguinal canal, the uh, external oblique um, is deficient. In fact, I won't get too complicated, but basically there's an area. So if this is, let's say, this is the pubis like this, about one centimeter up and one centimeter across, there is an area called Hesselbach's triangle, which is where there is only transversalis fascia and no muscles in a small area because the um, spermatic cord, which is coming from inside to outside to get down into the testicles, is passing... Um, from the inside, essentially, of the abdomen to the outside. And that area in, um, is vulnerable to having hernias. Um, so a hernia is where, uh, it's where um, in the anterior abdominal wall, is where the structures or the organs within the um, abdomen push out with a covering of their peritoneum. So that's the sac. They push out and they can go out through a defect in the anterior abdominal wall. So in Hesselsbach's triangle, they would go through the transversalis fascia straight out like that. That's a direct hernia. If they don't actually go out through a defect, the other place they can go out is through um, the inguinal canal because what happens is, is that the, the um, tubes come down from the inside of the abdomen, go 
in the internal ring, down the canal, and then pop out uh, to go down into the testicles. And so this is a, the internal ring is, is, um, is not a defect. It's supposed to be there. Um, and the stuff can go, so it comes out and down um, and like that. I'm probably getting a bit technical now, but those are the types of inguinal hernias. And I might come back to that later to explain it a bit better. But I just wanted to um, explain the difference between the top two thirds of the abdomen uh, and the bottom two thirds of the abdomen. Um, I just ask a question, because that's, that's yes. sorry to interrupt, but that's touched on something that I was interested in and wanted to ask you later on um, with regards to hernias. But you mentioned one reason why the lower third is, is in comparison weaker. Is there anything else? When I look at hernias, and especially when you're talking about coughing and sneezing and things, which we know we're going to have to do, why is it that humans are susceptible to these kind of protrusions and movement? And, yeah. and how, what is, is it because that lower third needs to be for a number of reasons kind of weaker to allow something or? Well, so I've said it's weaker, but actually that's, that's a bit of a uh, misleading statement because actually the fascia of the lower third of the anterior abdominal wall is stronger. So the linear alba has different collagen type compared uh, in that region compared to the upper abdomen. And so in fact, the, the linear alba is stronger between the umbilicus and the pubic symphysis. Um, however, the reason the lower abdomen is weaker is because we have to have these apertures for the structures to get out. Now, um, the reason why we have these kind of uh, what look like ridiculous areas of weakness that can result in hernias is because um, the same anatomy is in quadrupeds and in quadrupeds, so things that are on four legs, mm -hmm. um, these are not uh, like this and then come out like this. They're obviously like this. And so the pressure from gravity isn't downwards and therefore poking outwards. The pressure is would be the other way. So you don't get dogs with, uh, well, to my knowledge, you don't get dogs with inguinal hernias in the same way as you do with humans because uh, we are relatively newly upright and we have evolving anatomy and that anatomy in order to allow us to stand upright and be bipedal um, and so the pelvis is upright and we've got this we have got this tougher lower third of our anterior abdominal wall but we still have to have we have to keep those evolutionary bits where that allow the uh, tubes to get from the inside of the abdomen to the outside to get our to get the uh, to get the testes outside um, of the warm interior, they need to be in the cool exterior, um, and so that is an adaptation that we have uh, we, we've adapted to being upright faster than we've able to uh, um, correct the the the, uh, the the problem. And of course, people have reproduced before they end up with a hernia, so and you can survive a hernia. So there's little evolutionary pressure to correct it. Um, if you think about it like that, really. Yeah, that's very interesting. And that adds a couple, I think, to a list of that suggests that maybe humans did evolve a little bit too quickly when it came to jumping up on the hind legs to be able to see prey or whatever the reason was, or is there, there, there are a few little leftover weaknesses. I mean, obviously, the grand What's scheme of things. too quick, really, though? You yeah. Know, and there was no design. Um, it was just, it ha you know, it's one of those things. And we evolved to fill a niche. And um, mm. we were also living much longer than we ever were supposed to from an evolutionary perspective so yeah no, it um, we're very expendable time. from a universe point of view um but it's maybe getting a bit deep <laughs> that's healthy to remember that now again it's a good t-shirt uh, yeah uh, brilliant that's really interesting that's answered that, that my question that's wonderful so yes yeah, so i interrupted 
that's all right so um yes yeah, so i think i've talked about so i've, I've just got written down the layers of that so fascia muscles i have got the other diagram if you wanted to which was the showing the um ultrasounds and yeah so there's one that's got the layers of the anterior abdominal wall i think and then there's got one that's got the ultrasound of the whole anterior abdominal wall the slide um, i've got is diastasis recti abdominis who gets it and it's got a white image with six different um, no I've, yeah that, no no i mean that's vaguely interesting but not that interesting because actually i don't think that um it's very helpful um okay we'll get rid of that that's so, fine. yeah 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 um so um uh, yeah, so I mean, those are just different types of gaps that you can get. But um, yeah, uh, I actually think that mostly people end up with a diastasis in the region above their umbilicus um, because that's where the baby pushes out the most. Um, but we can talk about that when we get onto that bit, mm, I think. Definitely. The only other thing I haven't mentioned is I haven't mentioned uh, the nerves of the anterior abdominal wall. Um, and so um, uh the nerves that supply everything from kind of the armpit downwards are the nerves that come out of the uh, thorax um, and uh, the lumbar spine. And it's very simple because they come out um, in lines like this. And so, in fact, wait, I shouldn't be going like that. I should be going the other way because they come from the back and they go round. So we have an anterior ramus that goes from the back and comes round and supplies the skin like that. We've got one small one uh, and I'm doing it the wrong way around. So it it comes out of the spine and then goes through the back muscles, the paraspinals, and supplies just the little bit of, of uh, skin over your paraspinal muscles, which is why sometimes people get like a feeling like they've got a little tingly numb patch if they've got a muscle spasm, because the little nerve that's uh, the segmental nerve that's coming out of their spine is probably being annoyed uh, as it passes through to the skin. So that would be the um, posterior ramus of the uh, that segmental nerve. So let's say it's the T3 level, which is probably somewhere up here. Um, we've got uh, T10 um, around the umbilicus region. And um, uh, the, the last level is L1 um, that supplies um, down towards the groin and just above the pubis. And then we move into L2, which is sort of groin and L3 and 4 down the legs. So that's the dermatomes, the bit of skin that is supplied by those segmental nerves that are coming around the spine. And like I say, they come round in hoops um, and you get a little branch that comes out the side. Um, so that's the lateral anterior cutaneous nerve. And then you get a little one that comes out the front and that's the anterior cutaneous nerve. Uh, and they can be entrapped, giving you something called acnes and lacnes or you could, I don't know how you say the acronym, but it's it's basically ACNES or L-A-C-N-E-S. Uh, and that's just entrapment of that little nerve as it, it, it passes out through the, the different muscle layers. And you can actually get something called pockness, which is what I talked about before, is going out through the back. So those little nerves, as they're coming out. And so you can get problems along the uh, side of your um, abdomen or problems along the front, and they can give you pain and paresthesia, so altered sensation and things like that. The nerves are uh, followed by vessels. Um, I'm not going to talk about vascular injury, except to say that you can have um, injuries of the vessels uh, at, the, um, rectus uh, at the rectus muscles in the area where there's no posterior sheath, because that sheath is protective. And where there's no posterior sheath, the, uh, um, the arteries and veins that travel there are more prone to injury. And so you can get rectus sheath. Uh, vessel bleeding and that can give you a rectus sheath hematoma and that is extremely painful um, and um, is just, can present itself like a surgical emergency because it's so painful it causes um, 
uh, redness swelling um, in the rectus um, muscle of the anterior abdominal wall. Um, the only other thing I was going to say was, obviously, we've got our skin. And so I'm just thinking in terms of um, what people who do, uh, you know, soft tissue therapists are going to come across is um, someone might present to you with something going on with their anterior abdominal wall. And of course, it might not be in the muscle layers. Uh, it could be deeper in the organ systems, but um, that will probably present in a slightly different way. But then it could, of course, be on the skin. So we've got rashes. So you can have um, viral rashes like shingles. They would present as a band around in one of those segmental nerves and they wouldn't cross the midline because it would only affect one nerve and it would stop at the midline. So that would be a vesicular rash in that particular band. Uh, you could have skin infections. You can get uh, lumps in the skin like lipomas. I'm sure you've all come across just fatty lumps in the skin. Um, and, um, and finally, the edge of the rib cage. People will, you know, uh, talk about getting pain around their ribs or, or they will have, um, and that's where our, our muscles attach. And actually, external and inter external oblique will go slightly up above the rib cage. And internal oblique is essentially the um, muscles, uh, the intercostal muscles. That is essentially internal oblique between the, 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 the um, ribs. Uh, and then you've got uh, uh, transversus below. So I think that's basically all of the anatomy. I know it's a bit of a rush through. Um, if there are any questions about um, the anatomy, I'm happy to take them now. Otherwise, I'll start maybe talking about problems of the anterior abdominal wall. Um, that's great. Now, that's a wonderful breakdown. And it's wonderful. And that's what they said last time, because people obviously in the podcast, they could pause it. They can preempt with an answer if they're leading towards something they know. So it's a lovely way to revise it. But if anybody does have questions, I think they've all just got pen and paper out and they're just sitting down, scribbling down frantically, yeah. like um, Steve. So, really so um, the 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 lovely thing about the anterior abdominal wall is that because it's just below the skin, it's absolutely fantastic to see on ultrasound. So it's one of the easiest things to scan because it's just there. Um, and um, uh, so you can see all the different muscle layers um, and I might see um, if I can actually bring up um, a picture and just show it to you but I'll do that in just a second um, and um, so in terms of what can go wrong all the structures I've talked to you about something can go wrong with those um, those different layers um, and um, so I've nearly got it up and I'll get that up in a second. Um, and so I'm going to talk to you about what can go wrong in the fascia. I'm going to talk to you about what can go wrong with the muscles. Um, and I'll talk to you a bit about hernias. And I think I'll probably stick with that because I think that probably take us all the time. So I'm just going to see if I can show. And now I know it's not ideal. <laughs> Ideally, we'd be able to share the screen. But unfortunately, my uh, laptop is too old. And Matt hasn't offered to buy me a new one. Oh, yeah. Um, I said two and... more shows. And then we'll, look, we'll talk about it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so... Uh, this is an ultrasound picture of the anterior abdominal wall, and I know it's not perfect, but I this. See that? That's good. Yeah, I know. I'm getting. Uh, uh, yeah, so it shows you the the recti muscles, and you've they obviously highlighted. And at the side, you can just see the three layers just poking off on either side. This is actually my uh, anterior abdominal wall, so uh, don't have to worry about um, anybody showing their uh, abdomen. Um, and um, so you can see how beautiful that you can actually see the muscles there. So that's basically looking in from the front, looking towards the back. But I'm only looking a few centimetres deep. And so you can beautifully see the, the three layers. Um, 
Okay. And the other thing is with ultrasound is you can see it dynamically. So you can see what's happening when people contract. So you can see with the rectus, um, particularly when people have uh, a diastasis, um, you can see what's happening um, uh, when they contract their muscles, whether they're able to bring it together, etc. So I'm going to talk about that now. So um, I call it diastasis recti abdominis, but lots of people call it different things. But we're going to call it uh, diastasis um, tonight. Uh, so DRA. Um, and um, it is a widening of the linear alba, so the fascia in the midline of the abdomen, um, caused by um, anything that takes up extra space inside the abdomen. That could be um, adipose tissue, that could be um, some kind of cyst that is swollen, but most commonly it is due to uh, pregnancy because we have a growing mass inside the abdomen, um, a lovely mass which turns into a lovely baby. However, um, it's taking up space um, and so there's we need to make space for that. And the way that the body does that is by stretching. And so the linear alba at the front, so if these are the two recti, the recti just get wider apart and uh, the fascia just stretches. The fascia doesn't stay the same thickness. It thins when that happens. And then um, once the baby is born, then that fish fascia can come back together again. It usually doesn't come back completely. I think most ladies who've had a baby will find that they have a, a wider waist measurement afterwards because they've had something that's inside that has stretched everything. Um, uh, and in some women, it comes back together far better than others. So those people who are more at risk of having a diastasis are people who have bigger babies. And usually that's people who have a baby that's more than about four kilograms. Um, so that's 8.8 pounds, eight, eight pounds, eight ounces. Um, then it's uh, somebody who might have more than one baby inside. So, you know, twins, triplets, somebody who has a baby and something else inside. So that something else could be water around the baby. There could be too much. It could be a womb with fibroids. It could be, um, uh, well, but yeah, anything that, that, that takes up extra space. It could be adipose tissue. So it could be that uh, if someone has a high BMI, they also have extra fat within and around their organs, which is already taking up some space. And then you add in another baby. Um, uh, so, um, and the other people are people who have um, uh, increased uh, mobility of their fascia. So people with connective tissue disorders uh, who are more stretchy anyway, are more liable to stretch. And finally, people who are more at risk of diastasis are people who have babies when they are older. So those people who, and in my experience, generally around the age of 38, 39, 40, if you have a baby around that age, you are less likely to uh, find that your linear alba comes back together as well because our tissues are just less elastic after that, that time. Um, and so certainly having babies after the age of 40 will have a greater impact on the musculoskeletal system because it's just not as uh, stretchy and elastic. Um, and so all those people might be more likely to, to, and so when I'm speaking to ladies with a diastasis, I'll be asking all these questions. And um, uh, the, the thing about a diastasis is that it's really common and most women will find that it will come back together uh, with the right um, advice. And one of the main things is that you need to restore the strength control of the layers of the anterior abdominal wall. Actually measuring a diastasis, in my opinion, is best done using ultrasound because it's not about the gap between the recti muscles. 
it's about the length of the linear alba. When you're lying down, um, so if you're lying down, your abdominal contents will sink into your pelvis up under your diaphragm. So there's no pressure on the anterior abdominal wall when you're lying down. So if you have a linear alba, let's say, that's four centimetres wide, it may be that when you're lying down, it just kind of collapses a little bit. And so the recti seem to come together and you either have a corrugated linear alba between the two or it just dips down like that. Um, if you then uh, increase the tension of the abdomen, what can happen is that you can have really good recti apposition so they can come together. And so you think, well, I haven't got a diastasis because actually my recti are together. Um, but that doesn't mean that you don't have a diastasis because the linear alba could be corrugated in between. Now, if you've been really effective and you've managed to get it together before anything else is able to come out the bottom, that's fantastic. But some ladies find that when they contract their abdominal wall, um, rather than being able to get their recti together, the loose linear alba in the middle bulges up like that and their bowel sneaks up into that uh, space which has been left by the linear alba. Um, now, I know that physios like to work on um, helping women to contract their abdominal muscles in a certain way so that they don't get that kind of bulge. But regardless, the, the linear alba still has available space. Um, and generally, we tolerate a linear alba length, in my opinion, of about three and a half centimetres or less, certainly less than three reasonably well. My opinion is also that when we get to about four centimetres or more, I think ladies tolerate it less well and they aren't able to compensate. And the reason for that is, in particular, is we've just talked about what happens when you're lying down. But when you stand up, your guts fall down from underneath the diaphragm and they fall down into the pelvis and they put pressure on the anterior abdominal wall. So now that linear alba is not going to be corrugated between the two. It's now going to fill and it's now going to push the recti apart because it's now going to be under tension. Um, and so now, uh, number one, that's quite hard to feel and palpate. So as an examiner, I find it very difficult to examine women. In lying, it's easy, but it doesn't matter because it doesn't count. It's a false reading, in my opinion, in lying. In standing, it's very hard to feel. Um, that is the correct reading. And, in, and because it's hard to feel, the best way is in my opinion ultrasound because if you ask them to contract again it can come together but it's not the gap it's what happens in the middle so if you come together you might be able to get it in but there's still either going to be a bulge or it's going to dip in or it's going to corrugate now i had a lady who was um, a physical training instructor and she had a 13 centimeter diastasis and um, so in a kind of diamond shape just above her umbilicus um, over about that kind of uh, segment and 13 centimeters wide um, and she uh, had a, in lying she was brilliant and in fact in standing as well she was able to get her linear alba sorry she was able to get her recti together but just occasionally she wouldn't quite manage to do it quick enough and her bowel would sneak into the linear alba and she would pinch it and that would cause her pain and when she was weightlifting because she wanted to still keep very fit and she was able to, she's a physical training instructor. So she would actually use one hand to hold everything in and the other hand to hold her weights. And then she would do everything by providing manual pressure over the, the gap in the linear alba. So um, 
So in summary, my feeling is, is that we should be examining people in standing so that we understand what the width of the actual linear alba is and that the best way to do that is with ultrasound. Now, once you have a linear alba that's wider than in probably about four and a half, five centimetres, if you think about what's happening to the external oblique, internal oblique and transversus, is that they're trying to, so their job is to pull on the rectus sheath so that the rectus can then flex you forward. And if you have a very wide linear alba and you want to try to um, make it rigid so that the recti are then under tension, um, if you contract, there's only so far a muscle could contract. You can't keep contracting, keep contracting, keep contracting. It's only got so much pull in it. And so it can pull to here. And the question is, with that one pulling that way, that one pulling that way, and that one pulling that way, is that enough to get rid of the corrugations in the linear alba? If it is, you'll be able to tension the linear alba, you'll be able to create intra-abdominal pressure, and you'll be able to move effectively. But if that gap is too wide and you haven't been able to tension it, you're going to struggle to make like an intra-abdominal pressure. And so um, either you just don't and you might, for example, get problems with back pain um, uh, or you might get a bulging effect of your bowel coming forward to fill up that space as you try to make the abdominal pressure. Or you do something else, which is sometimes women will pull on their pelvic floor to start squishing up from the bottom. Um, and then they find that um, they're getting uh, maybe pelvic discomfort or, or, or uh, pelvic floor pain because their pelvis, pelvic floor is constantly switched on to try to create some pressure in the, um, in the intra-abdominal space. Um, and um, that can cause um, issues with, if you have a hypertonic pelvic floor, which means it's turned on all the time, that's you know reasonably effective until you stumble uh, or sneeze. And because there's nowhere for the pelvic floor to go now, it's already turned on, then you can leak because the pelvic floor is already on. There's no further lift available, which is what it's supposed to do. What the pelvic floor is supposed to do is it's supposed to be able to lift when there's a problem and relax when, there is, when, when there's not a great deal of tension. So if you're running along, you're gonna have slight tone in it. And then if you were to stumble, it would lift in anticipation that intra-abdominal pressure is going to go up. So that's what I mean. If it's on all the time, there's nowhere to go. So people can get sort of stress incontinence, even though their pelvic floor is super strong because it's trying to create extra intra-abdominal pressure. And the other thing that can happen is that women, so they're pulled on the pelvic floor, they're squeezing from the side. They will also push from the top. They will use their diaphragm um, to create that kind of cylinder effect uh, so that they get intra-abdominal pressure. And then Ladies will say to me, well, I'll say, you know, can you run and do you get breathless when you run? And they'll say, well, I feel like I'm shallow breathing, because if you think about it, if you push down with your diaphragm to create intra-abdominal pressure, suddenly you can't catch a breath because that diaphragm is doing work in the abdomen. It's not there to assist with breathing. And so um, often, as I say, they'll talk about struggling with breathlessness while they're running or just an inability to take a full breath. So... Um, those are the kind of problems that I see in the ladies that, um, that I look after with diastasis. So they don't come straight to me. Um, uh, the way it works in the MOD is that they see a women's health physiotherapist um, who will work with them, try and uh, do, um, make sure that they are strong, make sure that they do all the good work, make sure they've got good pelvic floor, 
um, potentially check that the, the pelvic floor is working as it should. Uh, and they will go through a period of rehabilitation. And then um, if there's concern that it's a wide diastasis or that uh, they are having other issues similar to what I've just spoken about, they will refer them to me where I will do an ultrasound scan. Um, and I will scan them in lying, but also I will scan them in standing. And that's the critical one to understand exactly what's happening uh, to the linear alba. Um, uh, yeah, when it's under abdominal tension, essentially. Uh, and I will look and see what their external oblique and in, um, external, internal and transversus are doing. I will look and see what what's happening at the linear semilunaris. Um, there was one lady who did actually have some stretching there as well, because, of course, you don't have to just stretch at the linear alba. You can also stretch at the linear semilunaris. So then you end up with a, uh, uh, some widening both uh, either side of the recti and also in the midline. Um, so these things are not as, uh, I mean, it's logical. You can understand why it happens, but it's not as simple as you think. Um, and um, But when it comes down to it, it does end up feeling like it's just, it's kind of just common sense. And um, and you can listen to the uh, experience that, uh, that women have when they're moving and you can understand why they're struggling because they aren't able to create tension in their torso, which I think means that they are probably uh, less likely to be able to transmit from uh, forces through their upper limbs. So they may feel like they're weaker in their upper limbs. They can't breathe so well when they're running. They feel like they don't have abdominal control. They might be getting some back pain, could be getting some pelvic pain, stress incontinence symptoms. And they might feel that they feel wobbly when they're kind of running because they are not able to control what's happening around their middle. Um, so a question. I'm just thinking, yes. so, so it's quite a masquerade then, so that it might, it could go undiagnosed, particularly with the, we know there's a, for various reasons, a lack of education when it comes to women's health, even amongst the women themselves, that they put up with a certain amount of leaking, so they think, oh, I've reached that stage in life or something. So when people do come to us and we ask these right questions, particularly soft tissue therapists, where someone's come for an hour and they've got more time to actually fill out a properly and have that conversation. This is something which we should be, investigating and looking out for so we do refer them on because like you've just said it could be an upper body weakness it could be out of breath and they're thinking it's a performance issue my training needs scheduling when in reality they're living maybe with postpartum diastasis and they haven't considered that that could be connected yeah you're absolutely yeah. right yeah so um uh you raised two really important points so number one is that women believe that and uh, you know obviously i can speak well i can speak for myself but um I think we assume that these things are, yes, of course, they are part of having a child and they're part of um, uh, being female. Uh, but that doesn't mean that. Um, and of course, it's natural, but it's natural to, um, you know, be susceptible to disease. It's natural to but that doesn't make it a fun thing to happen and doesn't mean that we should just leave it. Um, and so um, absolutely, this is something that is part of a normal pregnancy. Um, and having babies, but actually can leave you with a problem. Um, and so that's the first thing is to recognize that natural things can cause problems. Uh, and the second thing is that we should all as clinicians be asking women, um, you know, um, if ha have you had any children? Do you have do you think that you have any weakness of the anterior abdominal wall? Do you think that you have a gap? Do you think you have, um, you know, a mummy's tummy? Um, you, you know asking them whether they feel like and they might say oh yes but isn't that normal and it's like well it is normal to have that if you've had stretching of the anterior abdominal wall but that doesn't mean that it's not a problem 
Um, so yes, so those two things, making making sure that uh, we ask and making sure that education piece about um, not necessarily putting up with what life has has uh, given to you. Um, yeah. And I would say in particular, people with back pain. Um, mm-hmm. So ladies with back pain, we should, you know, we should always ask anyone who's had a baby with back pain about their um, pregnancy history, about big babies, about connect- connective tissue disorders, or, or, or even just you don't even have to ask them, have a look at their anterior abdominal wall as well. Just because they got paid on the back doesn't mean we shouldn't look at the front. Mm-hmm. That's what putting it. Yeah, it's interesting the number of times when we've looked at women's health and even when we did an episode on the core and, and kind of like modern interpretations of what the core is. I think it might be Noah Lewis. I think it was. But somebody mentioned a couple of times that we automatically think that we need to tighten stuff up. It's because things are untrained and muscles are weak when really... A lot of the time, it's actually the bracing which is causing yeah. the issue, and it's actually letting go of these things. And you've just summed it up wonderfully with the idea of trying to, you know, create that pressure by pulling up from the bottom and pushing down the top. So letting go, it's mm. yeah, amazing stuff. The difficulty really is, is so, um, so I don't want you to leave thinking that we have to get people to relax. And no, because they're actually... bracing for a reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and actually, I think that once you get off over about four and a half centimeter gap particularly in the military, where they're going to be asked to put heavy weights on their backs, they're going to be asked to run, they're going to be up. So occupational fitness, uh, but that probably goes for police officers, it probably goes for firemen or fire people. Um, we should be we should be aware that this could have an impact on that. And actually, for the ladies in the Army, uh, Navy, Air Force, who have this problem, uh, we are now referring, or I am now referring them for a surgical repair because, and um, yeah, because they are not going to be able to overcome that mechanical disadvantage through strength work, in my opinion. Um, and so we've had about 12 ladies now go through the surgical procedure, uh, which is basically uh, done by a plastic surgeon. Um, they do an incision from the iliac crest to iliac crest across the front a uh, similar location to where they might have a cesarean scar but much wider uh, the anterior abdominal wall is lifted they sew up the um the linear alba um and they bring it's slightly more complicated than that in terms of bringing the umbilicus up to the front then they sew everything down and um after six weeks the <laughs> what the plastic surgeon says to me is that they are bulletproof now um we take it slightly slower, so we say at six weeks they're ready for um, doing a good, um, uh, you know, a, a, a functional uh, strength and conditioning. And at twelve weeks, we get we we allow them to do um, um, any kind of abdominal abdominal loading they like. But between six and twelve weeks, we're just a bit cautious. Um, but um, the the results are absolutely incredible. So um, we've I've had. Um, um a, a lady uh i've just had a, a variety of different ladies who've all gone back to full physical fitness so the physical training instructor she had the the surgery she's uh, i mean you know they go off into the distance because they're back fully deployable fully fit the anatomy is essentially fixed so this is life-changing surgery because these are people so if you think about like an acl and you have a, an acl reconstruction that is not an anatomical fix that is a trying to recreate something um, that is, you know, beautiful evolutionary design. So we've we have um, done a reconstruction. We've attempted to do something, but that knee is now subject to potentially having arthritis in the future. 
Whereas repairing the linear alba, sewing up that uh, gap or uh, narrowing the recti is restoring the anatomy that you had at the beginning. It repairs the anterior abdominal wall and therefore, and that is now fixed. Um, and the, the ladies talk about feeling like they have their bodies back, feeling like they are able to um, move well, like their upper body on their lower body. Um, I had one lady who'd had three years of sciatic pain uh, and she woke up after her surgery bearing in mind she had local anaesthetic still in place and she said that she felt like her sciatic pain had almost gone uh, she's had a you know during rehab she's had uh, just a few little blips but essentially um she is now uh you know the rehab is now working whereas before she felt that they all feel that they, they were doing the work but they weren't able to engage everything properly um and um uh so i'm a big advocate for surgery to restore anatomy in women who are proven to have a diastasis that is affecting their function and causing them symptoms. So at the moment in the NHS, this surgery is considered aesthetic. Now there's two things yeah. about that. Number one, for some people, if you have less than about three centimeters, uh, maybe it is for an aesthetic purpose. But for some ladies, this is not aesthetic at all. This is about function and this is a, um, a sexist or sexism within our healthcare setup, in my personal opinion, where just because historically this is, this is something that, you know, uh, we have thought is um, a, uh, a natural part of women's life. And perhaps uh, what happens is women just accept a lower functional level. I think that many women these days aren't willing to accept that because of the changes in the way society is working. And we should be supporting people to stay fit and stay active and not have back pain. And therefore, to me, it seems ridiculous that we wouldn't repair something that could restore someone to their function rather than say, well, actually, instead of repairing this, what we're going to we're just going to ask you to do less because women with this with a wide diastasis usually cannot do high levels of activity because it usually brings on some kind of symptom um, and so therefore that would potentially lead to problems with raised bmi diabetes cardiovascular disease which then could in itself lead to arthritis chronic disease so this has a huge implication and i think is it would be a, a massive cost saving the the way to set up the pathway though is to set up um a uh, a pathway where we look at women's functional ability to move and we look at user using ultrasound to to actually accurately measure the diastasis work with our women's health physio colleagues to to provide strength and control work and then in those where that doesn't work alone um, do surgery to restore the anatomy of the anterior abdominal wall and restore function um, now, I may be too old before that all gets sorted out. However, at the moment, the women in the military are benefiting because um, because of what the military asked them to do. And that's um, I'm really proud of that. Something that we've set up. Um, great stuff. Happy I've gone message. off on one of my rants. No, it's, it's an amazing message. And, and you've given me a perfect kind of minute um, cut now to advertise and put things out. There's really important message. Really cool. Um, yeah, I was waiting for you to say that the NHS regards it as aesthetic. It's just, oh, do you really need this? Is it that important? And it's, yes, it is, it is typically, it is, yes, yeah, sexist, let's face it. Although it's, it has coincided nicely with a question 
um, regarding because men can get. I mean, it's less likely, but I think I've, I've come across bodybuilders in particular with extreme kind of internal pressure and lifting that sort of stuff. And, and actually, it's coincided with the question from Nikki, which is related to the army as well. Nikki Mansfield says, "I brought the question up on the screen. I guess the ratio of male to female patients with DRA is low. What have you found to be the main reasons for the men present with DRA? Are there any related to intense physical training, e.g., army training? Because men can get. I think I know someone who had the surge as well, the abdominoplasty, whatever it's called, because um, and it was for aesthetic reasons for this guy. Although I think it's been linked with potential erectile dysfunction and stuff for the same kind of reasons. But he just had it done because he was sick of having this." This, this look, he was a bodybuilder and very vain with it, obviously. And he had the surgery done. But yeah, what is it? What is what are causes for men? Do you see it in the army? The similar um, so the so um, I don't see it in physically fit guys with a normal BMI who are doing uh, normal military training. I do see it in people who are powerlifters. Um, mm-hmm. That is a bit of each. Um, so most people in uh, the military aren't necessarily in that. Um, they're not doing the same thing. You would ex- you would see people right. benching and things like that. And it is often those benching type maneuvers. Really, you know that you can imagine that sort of back arching, mm. intra-abdominal pressure, kind. Of, also, you know, squatting. So they they can get this defect in the anterior abdominal wall in the way. My mm-hmm. uh, you have more than just uh so they also have intra-abdominal fat so men tend to carry their fat uh inside their abdomen rather than in the subcutaneous tissue so if you have and people who are powerlifters often can tend to be more muscular but also just bigger generally mm-hmm. and some of that can sometimes be intra-abdominal fats so you've got the increased abdominal pressure and then you've got increased adiposity around their organs which is taking up more space and then you've got yeah and then this this pressure that's higher than the capability of the fascia to manage load and then you can get uh, diastasis in men as well with what mm-hmm. is more typically called a ventral hernia um which is essentially what a diastasis is so it's not a true hernia in that the an- the intra abdominal contents haven't exited through the anterior abdominal wall they've just caused the anterior abdominal wall to bulge um and so, uh, yeah, so what I do see in um, uh, male women who have a diastasis are more susceptible to because their linear alba is thinner is having epigastric hernias or, or rather midline hernias. So that's um, uh, hernias in the linear alba. So small defects in the linear alba where a little hernia has just poked through, basically. So you get them in, I'll just say, get them in the epigastric area here or mm-hmm. uh, para-umbilical, um, often just fat-filled. So they aren't a, a, a bulge of the um, uh, uh, peritoneum. So that's the abdominal cavity often hasn't gone through. Often it's between the um, the, the, the sac uh, and the transversalis fascia. Sorry, transversalis. There is a little area of pre-abdominal fat and that can poke up and go through little defects in the epigastric linear alba or around the umbilicus or at the umbilicus. Um, When you have the diastasis repair, they just get sewed in. They just get dealt with. Um, Sometimes, um, so if you want to have your hernia repaired on the NHS, uh, that can be dealt with. But most of, so, so, so there's a difference. So a diastasis repair is not the same as an epigastric repair. So that would be a, a localized repair. It's usually done by an incision straight uh, in, 
overlying the area where you have your hernia. So you end up with a little scar just where that little hernia is. Um, whereas a diastasis repair is most commonly done by a plastic surgeon through a lovely incision that ends up fading almost to nothing. Now, I've referred people with a diastasis and a hernia on the NHS, and um, one guy had an epigastric hernia um, that was relatively small that caused him pain on doing sit-ups, uh, and the surgeon said, yep, no problem, we can fix that for you, and he's on a waiting list to get that done. Meantime, I've sent someone with a large paraumbilical hernia uh, to the same surgical team. Uh, she has had four children. She has an associated diastasis, and he said to her, have you had children? This is normal. You don't need surgery. Oh, no, this is terrible. I can see yeah. how you're fuming and about it's, it. You know, and it just makes you Shocking. feel sort of sick. Um, and what I actually then just applied for her to have it done through the military pathway. And, you know, when the patient has waited that time to see that surgeon and then you think, well, you know, I could complain, but actually I don't want them to do the surgery regardless because they're clear, clearly, well, um, not my favorite person um on that particular day and so therefore um i'm going to refer them to somebody else um and i think that it's terrible uh, misogyny in within some areas of the nhs you know um and maybe that's an education piece as well but yeah. you know that is just you know just because that lady still needed to be fit she's had the same requirement to pass the same fitness tests um but uh was considered to be in a different category um yeah is what it is okay but like you say the military where they actually need the ladies and say oh you're injured are you oh, yes we need you then maybe that's you know with you spearheading yeah that's where the change will come from look it's nine o'clock already it's been amazing um, obviously we could go on for longer um but becky carroll has summed it up there was no other emoji to use their furious red faces across the screen yeah. as well absolutely shocking furious faces yeah um yeah no right amazing to aware to raise that awareness very interesting right okay it's time though um so we're gonna have to look ahead i'm sure you've got other things to do and people joining us the live lounge we try not to overrun so thank you so much sarah for joining us dr sarah Rowland. pleasure if people want to follow you on twitter is that probably the best place yeah yeah Altogether, um yeah dr sarah Rowlands. yeah that's me yeah yeah occasionally put stuff on about diastasis and some pictures yeah, that's great and then you're based, uh, well, you consult from Pure Sports Medicine Reigns Park, and they've got a website there, obviously, people can Yeah, find so if there are ladies, Med. yeah, if there, if there are ladies who want to actually see someone, so that I see lots of women, um, you know, in that private clinic who have diastasis, and I refer them on. Obviously, um, it's difficult for, you know, it's a paid service, but um, if there are people who have private health care, you can, um, because of it being essentially um, under the category of, uh, especially if they've got back pain, then it's usually covered. The only thing that isn't covered is then the surgical referral at the moment. Um, yeah. Okay, well, we'll put all of the contacts and everything in the show notes. Um, and if you, yeah, just the best way of raising awareness, and making a change is just by educating people. So share this episode. Um, I will make a little snippet of this, which talks about this in particular. So share that on your social media so other people get to know it. And yeah, there's misogyny, but often, like you said, sir, it's because of poor education as well. People are often scared of something that they don't know about and understand about, especially if they're very high in their professional field. But 
education. Perhaps misogyny is the wrong word. Uh, I think it's sexism is the right word, because it could theoretically also have been done by a woman um, Mm. just because of the way that people have been trained and the way that, you know. So, yeah, it's more that that woman was treated differently rather than Mm. it being a man that treated her badly, if that makes sense. It was more blatantly. So strange. We're drawing in our breath like, well, that's out of order. And yet. It's a protocol. It's like, and it will happen again with somebody else in the same situation. Yeah. It's like, it's very yeah. strange. Anyway, um, fortunately on this show, we get to meet people like yourselves and lots of other people working in the field who, who together can make a change, I'm sure. So thank you for that. Thank you for your endeavours. No and we are going to be, like I say, this is the first part, wonderful introduction. I love the way you've introduced you Nathalie, because it's just going to help with the next episodes coming up. If you listen to the podcast, it is worth looking at youtube and watching it because all the muscle directions and often the function of the muscle is obviously to do with the direction it's going with the obliques and everything and there's lots of hand gestures and movements and and you need to watch cerebellum in action to truly understand um what she was talking about with regards to the musculature of the of the anterior abdomen so yeah do watch youtube if this is a if this has um appealed to you and you're interested in, in listening to it again um next week um my guest will be dr dora papadopoulou is that good pronunciation penny with that uh talking about sports related groin and abdominal issues so we will be talking about similar things there's obviously going to be an overlap over that but with the uh with the great introduction we've had tonight for the uh, with the uh, anatomy then that's going to be really useful to take in the next four or next three sessions on this topic of the groin and abdomen so thank you sir Rollins, for setting a fantastic foundation for the rest of our guests i really appreciate it my um, pleasure we got down here. We've got a few more com- uh, comments coming in just to finish off the show. Nikki Mansfield has said, wow, 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 Sarah, for a new subject. What a massive subject. Thank you so much for sharing your immense knowledge. Thanks, Nikki, for the feedback. It's lovely. Tracy Turner, thank you, man. Sarah, so much amazing info. I'm going to have to listen back again. Yeah, definitely. This is definitely one of the ones you're going to have to listen back to again. I agree. And Louise Aker says, amazing knowledge. Thank you. I've taken so much this evening. Thank you, Sarah, and Matt. You don't have to put Matt at the end. I just produce it. It's Sarah, Dr. Sarah Rollins, who has allowed this to happen tonight. So thank you very much. Thanks for joining us live. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Um, And thanks once again to Dr. Sarah Rollins. You're listening to the Sports Therapy Association podcast, putting evidence back into soft tissue therapy.